listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is your 10-minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me, as always, is our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. There's a story about the day President Abraham Lincoln met Harriet Beecher Stowe. It was right around Thanksgiving of 1862. The Civil War had already started. Stowe and her family had traveled from their home in Connecticut to the Capitol, and reportedly Mrs. Lincoln invited the already world-famous author to tea. The president walked in and was introduced, at which point he took her hand in his and said, So you're the little woman who started this great war. This encounter was written by her son some 30 years after the fact, and after Stowe's death, so it was impossible to verify it with her. So there has been some historic skepticism as to its absolute accuracy. But few doubt the point that was being made, that Harriet Beecher Stowe had played a huge role in souring America's appetite for human bondage. And how did this one little woman do that? Why, a book, of course, specifically Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uncle Tom's Cabin was published in 1852, and the first printing of 5,000 copies sold in just four days. By the end of the week, the Boston Morning Post had declared that everybody has read it, is reading it, or is about to read it. There were 300,000 copies in circulation before the year was out, and that was just the start. Some 170 years later, it is the general consensus that that novel was the second best-selling book of the entire 19th century. The only book to sell more copies was the Bible. Remember, this was the century of Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn, Moby Dick, War and Peace, Pride and Prejudice, Frankenstein. From what records exist of book sales in that time, Uncle Tom's Cabin blew them all out of the water. So I'm betting you've heard of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Even if you haven't read it, you probably know it's a novel about slavery in the American South. Stowe's fictional characters in Uncle Tom's Cabin, who graphically suffered everything from being beaten, killed, and turned into sex slaves to having to watch their children sold on the auction block, ripped at America's heart, especially because the characters put so much faith in a Christian God to help them endure There was no doubt the novel significantly grew the abolitionist cause and, as Lincoln's quote suggested, helped spur along the Civil War to abolish slavery. It also taught people about the Underground Railroad. Before her book, that secret network of people aiding refugees on their flight to freedom in Canada was not widespread knowledge. Now, there are two main plots in the book, and the one we're going to concern ourselves today with, our Ohio mystery, is that of Eliza Harris. In Stowe's book, she was a slave in Kentucky, and her only child was being sold off to pay her owner's debt. This led to Eliza's escape with a toddler and what became one of the most famous scenes in American literature. 
when Eliza reached the half-frozen Ohio River with pursuing slave catchers in her sight, her only option was to be caught or to risk leaping across frozen cakes of ice in her daring bid for escape. She chose the latter and reached Ohio and the arms of abolitionists who helped her to freedom. After Stowe's book was circulating, pro-slavery communities raged against it. They said it overlooked the benefits of slavery, which ranged from the economy to and I swear this was a real argument they repeatedly made, to not appreciating the romantic love between enslaved women and their masters. They said slavery was sanctioned by the Bible, so there's that. And on top of it all, Stowe's book wasn't even based on anything factual. That's when Stowe said, hold up. The characters in her book and their life experiences were based on real people and real events. And that's when the search for the real Eliza began. If you were going to look for the real Eliza, it only made sense to go to Southwest Ohio. That's where it took place in her fictional book, after all. But it's also where Stowe spent her early adult years, living in Cincinnati, socializing among abolitionists, attending lectures and debates, and getting an earful from people who were actually in the business of aiding the refugees who were crawling from the shores of the Ohio River. I'll get to who that real Eliza might be in a moment, but I want to tell you a little bit more about Stowe and her time in Ohio. Harriet Beecher was born into a very religious family in Litchfield, Connecticut, the sixth of 11 children. Her father was a Calvinist preacher. Her mother died when she was just five years old. Harriet was enrolled in a female seminary where she got a traditional academic education filled with classics and literature and mathematics, and it nurtured her love of writing. She was 21 years old when she moved to Cincinnati It was 1832, and her father, the Reverend Beecher, was already there. He had become president of the Lane Theological Seminary. Cincinnati was a thriving city at the time, driven by trade and shipping along the Ohio River. That river was also a beacon for runaway slaves, since it was the dividing line between the slave state of Kentucky and the free state of Ohio. Among Harriet's activities there... She joined a literary group called the Semicolon Club, and that's where she met her future husband, the Reverend Calvin Stowe. The two married at the seminary in 1836 and went on to have seven children. After about a decade or so, the couple moved to Maine, where Harriet's husband landed a teaching job, and they, on occasion, housed escaping slaves themselves. That's where they were living in 1850, when Congress passed the Fugitive Slave Law, making it illegal for anyone to aid an escaping slave. Well, the Beechers, the Stowes, and all their fellow abolitionists couldn't have been more incensed or more determined. Within weeks of that federal law, Stowe wrote to an anti-slavery journal called The National Era, and said she intended to write about the problem of slavery. She said, 
I feel now that the time has come when even a woman or a child who can speak a word for freedom and humanity is bound to speak. I hope every woman who can write will not be silent. A year later, that journal published the first installment of Uncle Tom's Cabin, and it ran in serial form until it was completed and turned into a book. Now, I told you Stowe said her characters were based on real people and real experiences. But whose? Frankly, several people back in the Cincinnati area thought Eliza sounded a lot like someone they might have assisted. Some of the more notable abolitionists who claimed to have insider knowledge of the real Eliza were William Mitchell, Levi Coffin, John Parker, and a son of the Reverend John Rankin. You can look them all up on Wikipedia. They're all famous. Stowe gave all of them license to refer to Eliza in their own memoirs. I'm going to share one of them with you. He's got as good a case as any as to having aided the real Eliza. That's because he used to talk about her long before Stowe published her book while recruiting people and money to the anti-slavery cause. His name was Levi Coffin, a devout Quaker who is said to have aided more than 3,000 fugitives. A year before he died, in 1877, he published his memoirs with the title Reminiscences of Levi Coffin, the Reputed President of the Underground Railroad. Let me read what he shares about his Eliza. One side note, at the time he was living six miles west of the Ohio State Line in Newport, Indiana. I want to bring that up because Newport is mentioned in this story. Levi later moved to Ohio when he was urged by his supporters to be closer to the river. He eventually died in Avondale, Ohio, and is buried in Cincinnati. Here is Levi's story. She said she was a slave from Kentucky, the property of a man who lived a few miles back from the Ohio River, below Ripley, Ohio. Her master and mistress were kind to her, and she had a comfortable home. But her master got into some financial difficulty, and she found that she and her only child were to be separated. She had buried two children and was doubly attached to the one she had left, a bright, promising child over two years old. When she found that it was to be taken from her, she was filled with grief and dismay and resolved to make her escape that night if possible. She watched her opportunity, and when darkness had settled down and all the family had retired to sleep, she started with her child in her arms and walked straight toward the Ohio River. She knew that it was frozen over at that season of the year and hoped to cross it without difficulty on the ice. But when she reached its banks at daylight, she found that the ice had broken up and was slowly drifting in large cakes. She ventured to go to a house nearby where she was kindly received and permitted to remain through the day. She hoped to find some way to cross the river the next night. But there seemed little prospect of anyone being able to cross in safety, for during the day, the ice became more broken and dangerous to cross. In the evening, she discovered pursuers nearing the house, and with desperate courage, she determined to cross the river or perish in the attempt. 
Clasping her child in her arms, she darted out of the back door and ran toward the river, followed by her pursuers who had just dismounted from their horses when they caught sight of her. No fear or thought of personal danger entered Eliza's mind, for she felt that she'd rather be drowned than to be captured and separated from her child. Clasping her babe to her bosom with her left arm, she sprang onto the first cake of ice. Then from that to another, and another. Sometimes the cake she was on would sink beneath her weight. Then she would slide her child onto the next cake, pull herself on with her hands, and so continue her hazardous journey. She became wet to the waist with ice water, and her hands were benumbed with cold. But as she made her way from one cake of ice to another, she felt that surely the Lord was preserving her and holding her up and that nothing could harm her. When she reached the Ohio side near Ripley, she was completely exhausted and almost breathless. A man who had been standing on the bank watching her progress with amazement and expecting every moment to see her go down assisted her up the bank. After she had recovered her strength a little, he directed her to a house on the hill. She made her way to the place and was kindly received and cared for. It was not considered safe for her to remain there during the night. So, after resting a while and being provided with food and dry clothing, she was conducted to a station on the Underground Railroad a few miles farther from the river. The next night she was forwarded on from that station to another and then to our house in Newport, where she arrived safely and remained several days. Other fugitives arrived in the meantime, and Eliza and her child were sent with them by the Greenville branch of the Underground Railroad to Sandusky, Ohio. They reached that place in safety and crossed the lake to Canada, locating finally at Chatham, Canada West. In the summer of 1854, I was on a visit to Canada, accompanied by my wife and daughter and Laura Haviland of Michigan. At the close of a meeting which we attended at one of the colored churches, a woman came up to my wife, seized her hand, and exclaimed, How are you, Aunt Katie? God bless you. My wife did not recognize her, but she soon called herself to our remembrance by referring to the time that she was at our house in the days of her distress, when my wife gave her the name of Eliza Harris, and by relating other particulars. We visited her at her house while at Chatham and found her comfortable and contented. So that's Levi's account of whom he believes is the real Eliza Harris of Uncle Tom's Cabin. The only thing we know for sure is that Stowe crafted the physical description of Eliza, described as a beautiful light-skinned girl, after a girl she saw in a Kentucky church. She wrote about that later. She said she was struck by the girl sitting so demurely in the back of the church and inquired about her. She was told she was good and amiable and pious and owned by a Mr. Sound. Stowe said she replied, I hope they treat her kindly and they think as much of her as their own children. That's it for our 10-minute mystery. We'll see you here Sunday for our next regular full-sized episode. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week, and may all of your mysteries have happy endings.
History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.